Elvis. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about English soccer player Paul Gascoigne are insane. He snorted cocaine and knocked back brandy before some of the biggest games of his career. He had so many arrests for drinking and drugs that British tabloid reporters took bets on when he would die. He attempted to talk a cold-blooded killer down from a standoff with police, a rescue mission that involved a rotisserie chicken, two fishing rods, some bottles of lager, and a whole lot of blow. And Paul Gascoigne was at the center of some of the greatest moments in sports history. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Beehive Sonata MK2. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights from the BBC to a broadcast of England's heartbreaking World Cup semi-final loss to West Germany. And why would I play you that specific slice of tear-stained cheese could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest moments in sports on July 4th, 1990. And that was the day Paul Gascoigne's meltdown both made him an English icon and put him on a collision course with a murderer. On this episode, cold-blooded killers, police standoffs, cocaine and brandy, and the man who would have been the best player in the world Gaza, a.k.a. Paul Gascoigne. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 6, Sportsland. The sun was long gone. It rose hours ago and then eventually set like it always did. Disappeared. But yesterday's hangover wasn't taking cues from the sun. Yesterday's hangover wasn't going anywhere. It pressed down heavy on the back of his eyes. Also pressing heavy was the fact that he'd been arrested for drunk driving. Again, second time this month. Fucking cops. They were like flies buzzing around this steaming pile of shit that had become his life. And the only thing worse was the goddamn press. No doubt hiding in the bushes back at his place. Just waiting to snap another perp walk pic to pair with some clever headline. And what did the last one say? Disgrace fool? God, it wasn't even clever. They made him a hero once, but now they were more than happy to profit off his slide into infamy. One copywriting disaster at a time. But that's why Paul Gascoigne was here in this rundown two-room flat on the edge of town, to forget about everything for a minute. In better years, he wouldn't have been caught dead in a place like this, but these days his options and his funds were limited. Plus, he needed a score. He needed relief, something to take the edge off. And then maybe he could think straight, maybe head to rehab again, and clean up for real this time. He looked around the room, black scuff marks on otherwise bare white walls a junked-out sofa beneath his ass, 
coffee table, a half-dead string of Christmas lights that illuminated a small stereo sitting on the floor in the far corner. It was October 2010, and the radio was playing low, specifically CeeLo Green's breezy number one smash, Forget You, which was a sanitized version of Fuck You. Paul could relate, but there was nothing breezy about his Fuck You feelings today. By now, they had been distilled to pure rage. Rage at the cops, rage at the tabloids, mostly though, rage at himself. Yesterday was different. He planned to go light, a few loggers at the corner pub, back home before dark. But once he got there, they recognized him like they always did. A few slaps on the back led to a few stories about the glory days, which of course led to a few more rounds and more stories. And when he left hours later, his head was swimming. He knew he shouldn't get behind the wheel, but it was barely two miles home down the straightest road in all of England. He could make it. And he would have made it if not for the cops. And they pulled him over barely a half mile past the pub, forced him to blow into the tube, and nearly four times the legal limit. Footsteps coming from the other room in the flat brought him back to the now. His man had finally returned, holding a small plastic bag he filled with white powder. Paul handed him the money. He arranged eight white lines on the coffee table, as crisp and straight as the chalk marks on the field. Perfectly even, and they always had to be even. As soon as the first two lines hit his nasal cavities, memories and visions raced across his mind. He battled them, always trying to keep them separate, but they sliced through his defenses like attacking forwards, intertwining in a blur of constant motion. The press, the cops, they were ruining his life, just like they did to, to Modi. The name rang unfamiliar for a second. Then it clicked. Modi was like a brother to him. Modi loved to fish and work out. Modi also hated cops, but unlike Paul, he had done something about it. Modi killed a cop. Or had he? Fuck, Paul's head was reeling. That was a memory, right? From the summer? To be sure, he snorted two more lines. A warm glow grew inside him, and the memory shifted. It was faint, but... If he focused, he could hear the crowd roaring when he lobbed that game winner in the World Cup semifinals. And they kept roaring during the parade afterwards. He got the crowd screaming along to Fog on the Tyne, an anthem to the working class Geordie culture of his hometown, originally performed by the folk rock band Lindisfarne. The crowd cheered so loud that his manager convinced him and the band to re-record the song together. He could move. He was still getting royalty checks for that one. And then he heard another crowd in his head. This one cheered on as he kissed Princess Di in front of a packed stadium at Wembley. Now that was a memory. Less than a year after they were knocked out of the cup, Paul Gascoigne led the English pro team Tottenham to the FA Cup Finals, basically the national championship of English professional soccer. Princess Di and Charles were on hand to greet the starting squads from each team. And when Charles got to Paul, he bluntly asked, which one are you then? Which one was he? Seriously? He was the most famous player in the country, maybe the world. The one they called Gaza, the unstoppable force. How could his royal highness not know who he was? Paul was gutted. Diana made it better. She smiled and gave Paul a look to let him know that she certainly knew who he was. She reached out her hand to him, and even now he couldn't remember why he did it, but he asked her, can I kiss you? Her jaw may have dropped, but she didn't move her hand away. Paul leaned down and planted a smooch. The crowd went bananas. Back then, they loved everything he did. Hard to imagine two decades later that Di was long dead and Paul was somehow still here. In the fucking press. 
they'd driven a princess to her death, and now they seem set on doing the same to him, too. And they stole his mail just to break a story, and they paid off his friends for dirt, and they hacked into his phone. Well, he wasn't totally sure about that last one, but it had to be true. How else could they have zeroed in on his every struggle with remarkable accuracy? They knew things he had only told his mother. His shrink called it paranoia, and so did his family, but it didn't add up. With each line he snorted, more memories and visions surged through his brain, faster and faster, moving the ball closer toward the target, toward something that he desperately wanted to avoid. He did another line. Finally, the warm glow of relief radiated throughout his body. And for a moment, it all came back so vividly. The crowds, the noise, he could feel their love. They were chanting his name, screaming for him, Gaza, Gaza, Gaza. And the noise used to swell through the stadium until he could feel its vibrations from the locker room. Now it was swelling throughout this two-room flat. Noise so loud it seemed like it was coming from inside of him. It filled every inch of his brain. He heard the noise inside the lights. He was nowhere near a stadium, but he could hear it. Right here, right now. Suddenly, the front door burst open with such force that it nearly flew off its hinges. And that roar instantly went silent. It was at that moment that he finally realized where the voices had been coming from all along. Police, get down, we have a warrant to search the premises. And as he lay there, face pressed down into the grimy carpet, fucking police on his back, Paul Gascoigne saw another thing in his head. The papers, the headlines, they'd been bad before, but they were about to get so much worse. The slap reverberated through his skull and jolted him awake. Paul Gascoigne spun around to find his teammates in the plane's cabin exploding with laughter. Those bastards, sitting calmly with big Cheshire grins on their faces, always stirring the pot. Like when they took Paul out for a pint two years earlier and convinced him to walk away from a sure thing with Manchester United in order to join the Tottenham team. It was a bet that had paid off. His teammate, David Platt, like Paul at 22 years old, had barely snuck onto the World Cup roster. And they were both midfielders, but their style of play was totally different. David was rock solid, always in position, but Paul was wild and unpredictable, striking fear into the hearts of fans and opponents alike. And that combination worked out well in extra time of the knockout round against Belgium. With less than a minute to go, a frenzied solo push by Paul up the field resulted in a free kick. But with only seconds left, he lobbed up a perfectly placed ball and David took advantage by lashing it into the net to send them on to the quarterfinals. Two days later, David joined Paul in the starting lineup for the first time against Cameroon. He scored again to help power England to a 3-2 win in their first semifinal since 1966, and it was clear that both their stars were on the rise. And the plane began its descent, and the laughter died down. When David looked at Paul, it was a look that said once they landed, everything was going to be different. It was there on the cover of that day's papers. On July 5th, 1990, nearly every newspaper carried an image of Paul's tear-stained face. Cup heartbreak for England, read the headline, with Gascoigne comes of age written beneath it. As the plane got closer and closer to London, Paul wondered if it was true that things would be different. Two days earlier, sitting in the locker room in turn, moments before taking the field in the semifinals against West Germany, 
Paul Gascoigne was absolutely locked in. Any athlete can tell you that adrenaline is a double-edged sword. A little can give you an edge, and too much can cloud your judgment and make you push too soon, too fast. Paul checked his adrenaline level and the flame was burning low. Good. A yellow card last game against Cameroon meant that another mistake today and he would automatically be out of the World Cup Finals. He had no doubt the team would make it, but he also knew they would need him if they were going to win the Cup for England for the first time in decades. Despite being the birthplace of soccer, England's World Cup history has been littered with disappointments. So when the 1990 team nearly lost their first game, a disastrous tie with Ireland, the press was already calling for them to board the plane home. Critics said Paul in particular was a, quote, chaotic presence on the field. The critics had since changed their tune, though. A draw against group favorite Netherlands, followed by three white-knuckle victories in a row, brought England to the doorstep of the World Cup Finals. Paul was clutch in those games, his free kicks producing thrilling last-minute goals to beat Egypt and Belgium, and he dominated the run of play against Cameroon. By now, he was no longer Paul Gascoigne, he was Gaza, the unstoppable force, the best midfielder in the world, or so they said. As he tightened his laces to face West Germany, Paul wished the tournament could go on forever. The highly structured days of World Cup competition had been great for him. He was playing some of the smartest and strongest soccer of his life. He ate well and drank little. His mind was clear that he never wanted to leave the field. 100 minutes of play against West Germany and it was still tied one to one. Paul could sense that the Germans were tiring though and his legs were strong and he was ready to make a late game push just like he did against Belgium. Now was the time. He collected the ball outside the box and sliced through two defenders. He found a crack of daylight and turned upfield. There, a hole open, just for him. He crossed midfield, acres of grass ahead. Then, from the corner of his eye, a German midfielder swooped in. He swiped at the ball, disrupting Paul's stride. Paul turned left, looking for more daylight, but the hole was shrinking. Another German converged as he tapped the ball forward, just a bit further than he meant, and the German midfielder shouldered him and fell a half pace behind. That was his ball. No way in hell he was going to lose it now. Paul slid forward and knocked it cleanly away with his left foot. But as his momentum carried him through, he let his right foot make contact with something. The German tumbled to the ground. A whistle blew. A foul, maybe, but surely nothing major. He turned around to see the ref walking in his direction, reaching into his pocket. It could only mean one thing. The ref had it in his hand now, raised up in the air. Yellow card. Paul felt an aching in the pit of his stomach. He tried to push the feeling down, but his bottom lip was already trembling. The World Cup final was every player's dream. It was his dream, and they were gonna take it away from him? For some ticky-tacky bullshit foul? The tears were leaking out and he couldn't make them stop. Even worse, he had to somehow keep playing. His team needed him. Paul played the next 20 minutes with tears stinging his eyes. They built steadily as he watched Germany edge ahead during penalty kicks, and they crescendoed when the German keeper got a fingernail on Chris Waddle's final shot to send it an inch over the crossbar. Reality sunk in. Germany had won. There would be no World Cup final. Not for Paul Gascoigne. Not for any of them. The pain was searing. He'd been so sure they would win, but by the thinnest of margins, an inch it was all over. The English fans back home felt that same searing pain. After years of disappointment, they had held back their hopes, but Gaza's late-game magic had made them believe that this World Cup would be different. They watched him on TV, crying, clutching his English jersey. His pain was their pain, his tears were their tears, and they loved him for it. 
After the plane landed, the team filed into the exit row. The hatch opened, and there was a crowd stretching as far as he could see. A hundred thousand fans, easy, all screaming his name. And they were still screaming almost a year later, in May of 1991, at Wembley Stadium, as the second half of the FA Cup Finals got underway. Paul Gascoigne could feel the vibrations all the way from the training table where he lay on his back. The place was a madhouse. From the sounds of their screams, his teammates had just leveled the score one-to-one. -one. And then, momentary elation was eclipsed by the burning in his knee. It came roaring back. He was too afraid to look. So instead, he reached down with his thumb and ran it along the swelling mass expanding from his kneecap at an alarming pace. He pushed his thumb down and it practically sank into the fluid. Paul didn't need a CAT scan to know his knee was fucked. This is not how he envisioned his last game with Tottenham. It had been all over the tabloids for weeks that money troubles were forcing the club to liquidate their prized assets, Gaza chief among them. In fact, he'd already agreed to a contract with Italian side Lazio that would make him one of the highest paid players in the world. And the only problem was he'd never actually signed the contract. If the cup final was his last game with Tottenham, then it only seemed right to go out a true spur until the end. At least that's what he told himself before the game. When he ran onto the field, he knew immediately that his adrenaline levels were sky high. The final, his last game for the Spurs, his pregame brush with royalty, it was too much. He had played out of control from the start and now he was paying the price. And laying on the table, he tried to fight back the panic rising inside of him. And that fat contract with Lazio, that was as good as shredded. But that was the last thing on his mind. He'd never been injured, not like this, but he knew what it meant. Nine months, maybe more, before he'd walk right again. A year before he'd be playing again. And a year with no games. No wind sprints to run until his lungs burned and his mind was clear. No adoring crowds chanting his name. Just Paul Gascoigne alone in a training room with his thoughts. And that thought terrified him. July 3rd, 2010, Burtley, Northern England. Raoul Moat quietly walked towards the end of the block. It was late, a little after one in the morning. He held his sawed-off shotgun tight. Just two days earlier, he'd been released from jail following an 18-week stretch for assault. On the inside, he thought about one thing, her, his two-timing ex. He approached a cottage. He knew she was inside. She broke it off with him while he was locked up, if you can believe that. Said she was seeing someone new, and it was a fucking cop. Raul hated cops. They'd hit him with tickets and bullshit fines until they ruined his business. Tree surgery wasn't rocket science, sure, but sometimes you had to have your shit in the middle of the road to get the job done, and they didn't care. They impounded his van, they harassed him, and now they thought they could move in on his woman? You'd like to see those pigs try. He was gonna do what he came here to do. It wasn't a social call, that was for damn sure. And he wasn't here to check on his daughter as she slept in the back bedroom next to her grandmother either. No, he was here for one thing and one thing only, revenge. He tested the shotgun's weight. It felt good in his hands, calmed him down. He cocked it and crept silently up to the cottage's open window. On the couch near that same window, his ex, Samantha, sat with her new boyfriend, Chris. They were complaining about him, about Raoul. He heard every word for hours. His blood boiled with each new insult. And then, 
Just before 3 a.m., he decided he'd heard enough. Raoul screamed and leapt up from the ground, his huge body framed by the window. He locked eyes with Chris, who stared at him from inside. Both men raced towards the front door. Chris got there first and threw it open. Raoul was waiting on the other side, shotgun raised and aimed. Raoul pulled the trigger, and the barrel exploded. Blood splattered from Chris's neck and chest. He was blown backwards, his body hit the floor, dead. Samantha's blood-curdling screams filled the house. From where he stood on the front porch, Raoul turned towards the shrieking. He raised the shotgun and fired three shots in rapid succession. A spray of blood hit a rear wall. Samantha dropped to the floor. Then he heard Samantha yelling to her mother, call the police now. Shit, she was alive, but there was nothing he could do about that right now. Lights were coming on in houses all over the street. Raoul turned and ran, disappearing into the night. 24 hours later, Raoul's thirst for revenge was hardly quenched. He stepped out onto the street and was just past midnight. Once again, violence on his mind and a shotgun in his hand. The street was deserted, except for one car, a cop sitting in his parked cruiser. Raoul took a closer look and felt the shock of recognition. Looked just like the fucking pig who impounded his van last winter, he thought. Raoul picked up his cell phone and dialed. The dispatcher at the police station answered, 999, what is your emergency? You're not taking me seriously enough, came the response. Raoul crept up behind the car as the cop sat in the driver's seat, completely unaware. And Raoul stood still, took aim, and without a moment's hesitation, squeezed the trigger. Fifteen minutes later, a call rang at the same police station again. Are you paying attention now? Raoul smashed the phone onto the pavement and disappeared once again into the night. Seven days later, a television squawked to life with a breaking news report. Paul Gascoigne managed to pry open his bloodshot eyes. He looked down and saw the empty whiskey bottle in his hand. He placed it on the coffee table next to three more just like it. And the local news had details on a manhunt. Police had been chasing this guy all week. They had him cordoned off down by the river. Paul knew the spot well. It was his fishing spot. Had been ever since he was a boy. He reached into his pocket and found the small plastic baggie. He emptied its contents onto the table. He scraped out eight identical white lines. Crisp, straight, perfectly even, always even. He snorted the first two and checked his phone. 36 new messages. He'd spent the week hiding from the well-wishers, old teammates, and reporters who wanted to know Gaz's thoughts on the 20th anniversary of that glorious yet frustrating World Cup run. He couldn't stand to watch the replays now. He looked so young back then, so fit. It only reminded him of how low he had fallen. After the knee injury in 1991, his speed had never quite returned. His nerves got worse. He drank three or four brandies before games just to stop the shakes and to counteract the cocaine. It didn't show on the field right away, but by 1998, he was left off of England's World Cup roster. When his coach delivered the news, Paul tore up his hotel room in a rage. He never played for the national team again. So rather than face it all, he just started drinking. And that was three days ago, or maybe four. To be honest, he wasn't really sure. He hit another line and turned his attention to the television. Crowds of reporters and onlookers had already started to gather. The TV flashed a picture of the suspect. They said Mo was acting out a vendetta against the police. Paul could relate. Not this whole murder business. That was a little out there even for him, but still, there was something about this Mo character. He was a Geordie, just like Paul, a working class northerner. And if he wasn't an athlete, he was definitely built like one. 220, 240, solid muscle. 
could have been one of Paul's knucklehead friends from back home in Gateshead. In fact, the news broadcast mentioned he grew up just across the River Tyne in Newcastle. Paul but the guy liked to fish. He snorted two more lines and that old familiar warmth started tingling through his body. Memories and visions sprinted across his brain. After a four-day bender, his defenses were no match for their speed. They swirled together in a constant blur of motion. He thought some more. Yeah, this lad on the TV said the cops had it out for him. Now the press was swooping in too. Who else besides Paul Gascoigne could understand? Who else could lend a sympathetic ear? Paul went to the fridge and grabbed the last four loggers inside. As he struggled to carry them, he spotted his fishing jacket slung over a chair at the kitchen table. He threw it on, tucking each bottle in a separate pocket. As the television report continued, he hoovered up the final two lines. The blur of motion in his brain continued, swirling faster and faster. This lad, what was his name? That's right, Raul Moe. Modi, old Modi, poor bastard was holding a shotgun to his head, threatening to end it all. If Paul could just talk to him, maybe take him out fishing, he bet he could get him to put the gun down. This lad, this Jordy, this athlete, this northerner from just across the river. Paul knew him so well, knew what he was going through. He was practically a brother to Paul, right? Why not? Stranger things were true. Snatches of memories from the World Cup 20 years earlier entwined with visions from the television set. Paul had always come through in the clutch. Maybe now he could be the hero once more. The cocaine grabbed him by the shoulders and threw him around the room. He rushed back to the fridge and grabbed a half-eaten rotisserie chicken. And no doubt Modi would be hungry. No fucking doubt me. And then he ran to gather two fishing rods, just in case they had time to hit the river. Paul knew a great spot. So then he called a taxi. When he arrived at the crime scene, the crowds had swelled beyond the police barricades. The noise was deafening. White lights were everywhere. Paul pushed his way to the front of the barricade, yelling, where's Modi? Where's old Modi? His brother's here. A murmur spread through the crowd. Eyes perked up, fingers pointed, and then someone yelled out, hey, it's Gaza. The crowd roared. The cameras flashed. He raised his arms and waved, and they loved him. It was 1990 all over again. At least that's how it felt to Paul Gascoigne. And the attention distracted him from what happened next. After a six-hour standoff, Raul Moe finally squeezed the trigger of the shotgun he held to his own neck. The blast rang out into the night. His body collapsed into a heap. The cops were on him in an instant, but it was too late. The man Paul Gascoigne knew, or thought he knew, as Modi was declared dead at the hospital. The press called Paul's agent for a quote or for some sort of context to explain his client's behavior. He's doing what? Paul's agent responded. I'm sitting having an evening meal in Mallorca. I'm speechless. Paul Gascoigne probably didn't even know why he decided to do what he did that night. But he did know what would happen once the UK press ran with the batshit story. And it would not be pretty. Adrenaline level check. The fire was burning, but the flame was down nice and low. Good. He had no control over when they would finally announce his name and he could step out from backstage, but he felt in control of himself. No easy feat being in control. Well, that was often easier said than done. It had been more than a decade since he crashed a killer's police standoff with a rotisserie chicken, fishing rods, and lager. 
In the years since, things got a little better. It was all relative. The string of arrests and embarrassing episodes continued, but their pace had undeniably slowed. Something shifted. Just like on the field, it was hard to say what started the rally. New meds, new therapy, new attempts at rehab, and maybe some of the lessons of the past were finally taking hold. After every self-inflicted setback, he just kept slowly working the ball back towards midfield. And he got a big assist in 2015 when he reached a settlement with the Daily Mirror and The Sun, among others, after it was confirmed that reporters had been hacking his phone, spying, and even betting on the day he would die for more than a decade. He fucking knew it. That victory was a major vindication for him. He wasn't about to give some hack writer the satisfaction of winning their gruesome little Deadpool. And hacking his phone, that wasn't some silly office game either. That cost him relationships with friends and family. It caused his paranoia to deepen. He didn't trust anyone. Later that same year, a BBC documentary put Paul's tumultuous history in a new light by revealing his struggles with obsessive compulsive and bipolar disorders. The fans in turn were sympathetic. Their support put even more momentum at his back. And now, standing backstage in January 2021, he felt something else at his back. A heavy tap on the shoulder. He turned around. It was Vinny. Vinny Jones is a big physical enforcer who had tormented Paul in the field during his playing days. These days, however, Vinny parlayed that hard man reputation for an unlikely second career as an actor, playing roles like Bullet Tooth Tony in Guy Ritchie's gangster heist film Snatch. Paul and Vinny might have made an odd couple years before, but now they made a winning team on the nostalgia circuit. Over the last five years, Paul had been able to keep his name out of the papers. Well, mostly. The good days outweighed the bad. People paid serious money to hear him tell stories about his big games on the field as well as his wild nights off of it. It wasn't exactly the same as running through the tunnel at Wembley, but the roar of the crowd when he was introduced scratched that itch for a small piece of the old days. It was hard to let go of his time as England's golden boy, but now, 20 years on, he was finally feeling comfortable in a new role as English football's prodigal son returned home. Older, surely, and maybe just, maybe a tiny bit wiser. He could hear the MC wrapping up his introduction, and he stood and walked to the edge of the stage and peeked out from behind the red curtain, and the house was packed. A stagehand clipped a mic to Paul's suit jacket. He checked his adrenaline levels one last time. Steady. He took a deep breath and exhaled and the stagehand pulled back the curtain just as the MC was finishing. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Paul Gascoigne. He stepped through the curtain and out onto the stage, and the stage lights filled his vision. All he could hear was the roar of the crowd screaming his name, Gaza, Gaza, Gaza. And they loved him, and he loved them back. He could have been the best midfielder in the world, but those days were gone. That game was over. Now, he was something else entirely, an icon. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. 
If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.